You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriolo, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. Today is Tuesday. It is the first game of the World Series, which will start in, oh, four and a half hours or so from now. Hopefully you listen to this before that. We have to talk about the World Series. Obviously, there's so much to get to in advance of the the uh, series kicking off tonight. It should be a pretty interesting one. I know if you look at the Vegas odds, Houston is a pretty massive favorite. But I think that's kind of bogus. I think that they're actually pretty evenly matched teams. I assume it's just that way. Let me preface this. I know nothing about how Vegas odds work. Um, I think they just think that people will be uh, betting on the Astros, so they want to make sure that the money works out for them. My point is I think this is like a 55-45 advantage, maybe 60-40. Like, it's perfect. This is the like ice-cold take. It's perfectly reasonable to expect either one of these teams could win four of the next seven games. I think that's fair. I mean, that's generally, <laughs> I mean, if the uh, Astros were playing the Royals, you could you could say that too, but... Uh... Yes. I mean, especially since you're, you know, it's a short series, there's days off, you get to start with, you know, your elite legend um, rotation starting pitchers, which we'll get to in a second. But first, a quick postseason update. Teams out homering their opponents this postseason are 20 and 6. As always, it is good to hit home runs uh, in the ALCS and NLCS. The teams that out homered their opponents were 7, 2, and 1. Seven wins, two ties, and one loss. Uh, that is not loss, actually, but just didn't win that game in the fourth game of the NLCS. The Cardinals hit a home run. The Nationals didn't. Cardinals lost the game. As always, hitting home runs is a good thing. You should try to do it. Uh, this is true. But, you know, the next thing I wanted to talk about, Mike, is actually maybe actually kind of refutes the point you were making oh. about oh. about the uh, the Vegas odds. And that's really just that, um, you know, there's definitely this idea in baseball postseason that it's kind of a crapshoot. You know, Billy Bean famously said in the book Moneyball, my stuff doesn't work in the playoffs. Basically saying his point was that, like, 162 games, I can build you a winner. You get to the playoffs, there's... 10 even or then it was eight now it's 10 evenly matched teams and like you can't tear this down this is all dodger fans have to hang on to right now (laughs) um and for a while i think the conventional wisdom has been a most in more you know in baseball circles analytical circles all like everywhere in discussion that like the postseason is kind of random and it has certainly felt that way but um some research that was done by some folks uh in in our office has maybe changed my thinking a little bit on the subject. I was tipped off to this originally by Jason Ratliff, who is the um, managing editor of MLB Pipeline, and then uh, our own Andrew Simon in our research group um, dug a little deeper. And basically, the research that they're showing, that they've done, shows that in recent years, we may be seeing a shift and that maybe the playoffs aren't as random as we once thought they were. Let me explain. So basically, what Andrew did was he looked at the last, I guess, Three plus postseasons, so 2016 to now, uh, including the first, you know, three rounds of this year, and the previous six years, so 2010 to 2015. So we have two groups to look at here. Two groups to look at, right? And from 2010 to 15, the team with more w- wins above replacement, according to Baseball Reference, was 18 and 32 in postseason series. Wait, 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 wait. The team with more wins above replacement had a losing record. Losing record was a losing by record a lot. by a lot. That's insane. Insane, okay. right? Suggesting that, like, yeah, this is pretty random. 
But since the start of 2016, and I think it's fair to argue that like the 2015, this is a little bit arbitrary, but like I think that like 2015, the Mets World Series was not exactly a couple of super teams. Right. But well, in the last a few, lot of those Giants teams were not like regular super teams. teams yeah. The last few years, we've seen, you know, 2016 was the Cubs, 17 was Astros, uh, Dodgers. Dodgers. Last year, you had Red Sox, you know, Red Sox, Dodgers. So yeah. we, we're seeing a little bit of a change. 2016 through the LCS this year, the team with more war is 26 and nine. And that's somewhat of a sea change. Exactly. And in that span, if you look at it by teams that had at least more than five war, they were, they've been 18 and four. Teams with at least plus 10 more are 8 0. Plus 10 more. It's like an advantage of 10 wins. 10, 10 more. Okay. Yes. So basically, it is showing, whereas like in the previous sample, um, the team with at least 10 plus four was 5 and 5. So basically, there seems to be the reason, and this could just be a fluke, but there seems to be something that's suggesting that the best teams are kind of stratifying themselves. They're figuring out something that's not just manifesting itself in the regular season but also in the post. Because we talk about that a lot in the regular season. Like there's, yes, a couple of super teams, too many teams losing 90 and 100 games. But you, you're proposing that even just in October, the best teams are better than the worst playoff teams. I mean, that's this is suggesting that there is, that this era of super teams is like a real thing and it's showing itself in October as well. And I bring this up when talking about these two teams because yes, right now they feel very evenly matched, but it's worth noting that the Astros won 14 more games than the Nationals did this year. The difference between the Astros and the Nationals is basically the same difference as the Nationals versus the Rangers. Well, that's true in some sense, but uh, I know this is a little unfair, but I'm going to slice off the front third of the season where the Nationals famously started out 19 and 31 and were generally terrible. If you go to their low point on May 23rd and you start from there to the end of the season, the Astros had the best record in baseball. They had 74 wins. The Nationals had the second best record in baseball. They had 73 wins. I know it's unfair to pretend those games didn't happen. They did. But over the last seven years, the Nationals have the second most wins in baseball. Like that that first third when they were like trying to have Trevor Rosenthal close games for them, that seems like more of an outlier to me than any of the rest of the oh, season. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody did. <laughs> um, that's fair. Um the Astros, if you're wondering, did end up with uh, the number is um, 22.1 more war than the Nats this year for the record. So something to keep in mind as we're watching as we're watching this series is how much like the better team is has started. The, the, these numbers you're seeing here is almost closer to what you'd expect in the NBA, where basically the the, the, the better the quote unquote better team wins like 90 percent of the time. We're we're almost in the last three plus years in uh, baseball postseason. We're almost at that at that rate. Okay, you know who had a lot of wins above replacement during the season this year? Who? Jordan Alvarez. Indeed, he did. You know who's been absolutely atrocious for the last two weeks in the playoffs? Jordan Alvarez. Indeed. So I, I'm. This is our next segment, but I'm also somewhat questioning uh, the first segment here because if he's not that player, then everything gets thrown out, right? Because he's he might be a zero win player at the moment. And that's one thing that also um, could even things out in the postseason. Also, is that this is a situation where. The Astros have like a true desig- d- true DH type who provide a lot of value to them, whereas he's not going to play in the National League parks. So that's kind of a huge well, equalizer, assuming you have the real Jordan Alvarez. Well, so you're, you're right. Alvarez, uh, we kicked this around the office the other day a little bit. He is 
definitely not going to play the field in Washington. But there was a version of him where if he was hitting like at his peak, you might consider playing him out there instead of Josh Reddick. But the way things are going right now, absolutely not. Alvarez this year was fantastic. He's going to be the unanimous rookie of the year winner, I think, without question. He didn't come up until June, but he hit 313, 412, 655, which is outstanding. He had a 173 weighted runs created plus, where 100 is league average. That was second only to Mike Trout among guys who had 300 plate appearances. And if you look at expected weighted on base, our favorite stack cast metric, his 411 was seventh. He was almost without question a top 10 hitter in baseball as a rookie. This is really good. Uh, and then the postseason got off to a pretty good start. In the ALDS against Tampa Bay, he had 20 plate appearances, 316, 350, 474. Like, great, full speed ahead. Against the Yankees, 24 plate appearances, two walks, one hit. That's a batting average of 045, uh, 125 on base, 045 slugging. If you add that together, you get a 170 OPS, which is the sixth worst ever in a league championship series among anybody who's had 20 plate appearances. Uh, fun fact, one of the five guys who had a worse league championship series is one of his teammates. Two years ago, Josh Reddick had a 117 OPS, which I can't say I remember, uh, and it didn't slow them down, I guess, but ooh, hachi machi. <laughs> um, so this big question here is what happened to Alvarez? If you were to look at the advanced metrics and you compare them to his regular season metrics, you will say uh, in the ALDS, he had a 275 expected weighted on base, which isn't really that great. Uh, but his 351 weighted on base was fantastic. So you can see right there, he was a little bit fortunate. He overperformed. If you look at the ALCS against the Yankees, he had a 170 expected weighted on base, which is really bad. And an 094 actual weight on a base, which is considerably worse, he was slightly unfortunate. And if you add all that together, he has earned every bit of it. If you combine October, his 217 expected weighted on base is basically the same thing as his 211 weighted on base. So uh, if you split it into halves, you can say good luck, bad luck. But if you just take his month as a whole, he has just been poor. And so that is the question, right? Why? Now, I have the answer. I have an answer, but I want to know. Uh, do you have any suggestions as to what has happened to this poor young man? I just thought it was, I mean, to, to me, and I'll admit I have not dug into this, and I'll let you dig into it a little deeper. I sort of read it as just like, you know, this happens. Yeah. Like in, the, in the postseason two years ago, 2017, in the ALDS, Aaron Judge was like one for 20 with 14 strikeouts. And then the ALCS, he got some big hits. And it was just like, oh, this happens. Obviously, it's more than just this happens. So I'm curious to know what you sort of uncovered. Well, I think that it's there's definitely some truth to that. Um, if we looked into the numbers and we found a couple of things. Now, not surprisingly, seeing you know more left-handed pitchers in the postseason, 35% in the regular season, 45% in the postseason, to be expected. Of course, he pounded lefties during the regular season. He slugged 649, so you wouldn't think that would be a problem. Uh, he's swinging a little more. Part of his uh, performance during the season was he had really good plate discipline. He's swinging more uh, 51% of the time, and in the regular season, 43% of the time. He's seeing a few more fastballs. But here's the stuff that I found really interesting. The fastballs he's seeing are coming in a lot higher, and the breaking pitches he's seeing are coming in a lot lower. I think these are just more difficult pitches to make solid contact on. We have the numbers to back this up. During the regular season, the average four-seam fastball he saw arrived at the plate at 2.8 feet above the ground. In the postseason now, it is 3.1 feet. That is the third highest of anybody who's seen 54 uh, seamers this year. And if you prefer it in a percentage, you could say, well, how many of the four seamers he's seen has come in above two and a half feet above the ground? 63% in the regular season, 76% in the postseason. So more high fastballs. The exact opposite is happening on sliders and curves. If you consider a low pitch to be one that comes in under two feet in the regular season, 55% of those were low. And in the postseason, 81% of them are low. So uh, you combine higher fastballs, lower breaking pitches, 
more swings, more chases. And I think what's happening is, you know, better pitchers are attacking him more aggressively. And he is, I don't know, too eager to impress. Like, I don't want to put this on the guy. Like, he's a rookie. Who knows? But he's making worse decisions against better pitches. And that has ruined his month. And that there is something to be said for this idea of better versus worse. Because when this is a one point that I think sort of speaks in the Nationals' favor that I saw uh, Randy J- Jazzy early talking about on Twitter earlier today is that what might be overlooked is just how bad the American League was this year and how that kind of maybe the Astros were able to kind of pad their um, – pad their record against you know some of the, the, the worst teams in the league the, of the worst six records you had five of the six uh were in the american league tigers orioles royals blue jays and mariners so those are five of the six worst team the only other team in that group would be the miami marlins and the astros went 37 7 against those teams including 18 and 1 against seattle the nationals went 21 and 8 against those teams so like you sort of almost like you don't want to throw it out completely but it suggests something and i bring that up because if you look at Jordan Alvarez's splits. Well, let's see how he hit against, oh, I don't know, the Seattle Mariners. Is it, is it good? <laughs> 371, 439, 629. How about the, you know, Baltimore Orioles? 412, 474, 1,118. Why, why are we picking on the Orioles right That's now? Just, that, by I, the way, I, that, mind you, that was his slugging, not his OPS. <laughs> he slugged over 1,100 against uh, the, I, the Orioles. I will note also against, in the regular season against the Rays, he hit. He had a 1500 OPS, and you know, uh, it wasn't all just beating up on um, the uh, the the, the second tier team. I did, I but did it's something see... to consider when talking thinking about Alvarez against really good pitching and also the Astros in general. Yeah, I was gonna say, I did see in a, a Sam Miller article this morning at ESPN, and I did not independently verify this myself, but I trust Sam, so I assume it's right. Uh, that by one measure, Alvarez faced the I think fourth weakest pitching in baseball during the regular season, which kind of goes to your point. Um, I don't think that quite explains all of what we're seeing. I don't think he is an unplayable hitter, which he's basically been for the last two weeks. You know, for all the talk about how the Yankees didn't have like that quote unquote ace starter, they have a lot of really good pitchers, you know, and they attacked him pretty well. And uh, that probably does all go back to uh, it's October. It's small samples and stuff happens. I assume he'll be better than that. I, I don't think he'll be regular season Alvarez because no hitter should be the regular season version of themselves in October. Yeah, that almost in, in, uh, in, it almost makes you wonder if it would have been worth it for the Nationals to consider starting Corbin in Game Two to even further, ne- like to sort of neutralize because he's Corbin right now is probably going to start Game Three in which Alvarez wasn't going to play. Right. Anyway, right. So now, like, if they consider starting him in game two oh, because of the ballpark, because of the ballpark, that's interesting. Um, I'm not sure you, if it's... you can't do it. Like, you can't tell Strasburg he's not starting game two. Yeah. You know, it's 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 one of those things that, like, in theory makes sense, but in practice is never going to happen. Speaking of which, someone tweeted at me about whether the Nationals should punt to the first game of the World Series, assuming that you can't beat Garrett Cole, so you might as well throw a weaker starter against him, which is one of those like galaxy brain things that sort of in some possible version of a universe makes sense but also it's the first game of the world series <laughs> it's also they're throwing max scherzer i know it's, i know that's what i said like i said like if cole was better than scherzer which like that's not a definite that's an if it's it's not by a lot <laughs> you know it's, yeah it's it's i mean max there's i mean he i know he exactly he had some some health issues in the second half and um but it's still Max Scherzer. I think yeah. that he actually, you know, there's a, a, an upper tier of pitchers in baseball right now, and it's a group of like five or six, maybe. Yeah. And there's four of them are in this series. <laughs> and Scherzer, Scherzer, and Cole are in that are both in that group. So um, I'm not I'm not so sure about that. One thing I am looking for uh, tonight is 
whether Scherzer or any Nationals pitcher will get Yuli Gurriel to strike out. This is the weirdest thing, and I I, I don't think I realized the full impact of this until I read this piece that uh, David Adler wrote at MLB.com this morning. So I knew that Gurriel, like most Astros, uh, has a very high contact rate. If you look at the last three seasons, he has the fourth lowest strikeout rate. You know, just 10.9%. Michael Brantley is actually third. Okay. In 2019, he has had 46 postseason plate appearances and zero strikeouts which is objectively impressive. I mean, that's impressive to do during the regular season to say nothing of the better caliber of pitching in the postseason. He's actually on a run of 62 straight plate appearances without a strikeout, dating back to game two of the the postseason. Yes. Dating back to game two of the ALCS uh, last year. Uh, And that's the, I believe the third longest of all time. Willie Randolph had 63 straight, although nine years apart in 1981 and 1990, the record holder, which I cannot imagine Gurriel is going to break is 105 consecutive postseason plate appearances without a strikeout by Yogi Berra from 1956 to 1961, which I know there's not video for all of those, but now I kind of wish I could go back and see all of them. Like, what kind of pitching was he facing? I'm sure, like, I know there were good pitchers, obviously. They but... weren't throwing 92-mile-an-hour sliders, I'll tell you that much. As great as Yogi Berra was, they yeah. were not throwing 92-mile-an-hour sliders on the on the black. Uh, as David wrote, there have only been five players who have ever finished a postseason of more of 40 or more plate appearances and no strikeouts. These are some very random names here. Joey Cora of the 95 Mariners, Tim Foley of the 79 Pirates, uh, Sid Bream of the 92 Braves, which is definitely why you remember Sid Bream in the playoffs. Uh, Ozzie Smith and Fernando Vina did it for two different Cardinals teams. So that's really cool. There's a guy who's making a ton of contact. He's going against the grain, but also he's not hitting. <laughs> You'd think like, oh, wow, this guy's, this guy's doing great. 209, 239, 302, a 541 OPS in the playoffs. Uh, I should have looked up Woba, but I didn't. It's probably the same idea. That was stunning to me. So I thought to myself, well, how do you make that much contact and have that little production? There's really only two possible ways you could do it. The first way is, you know, bad contact, you know, weak contact, hitting it into the ground. That's not it. I was I was shocked to find that's not it. His hard hit rate in the regular season was 38%. It's 39% now. His ground ball rate is actually down a couple of points. And what's happening here is maybe some uh, October counterbalancing of the fortunate outcomes he had in the regular season. In the regular season, he had a 320 expected weighted on base, which is like roughly league average. You may remember he got off to a terrible start and then was like one of the 10 best hitters in baseball for the second half. So he had a 320 expected during the regular season. He has a 318 expected in the postseason. But in the regular season, he had a 369 actual weighted on base, so that's plus 49 points. And this year in the postseason, a 233 actual weighted on base. He's missing 85 points. So he didn't entirely earn that regular season line. He's not entirely earning what's happening in the postseason. Uh, There were some very nice defensive plays. Aaron Judge, who had a really nice defensive October, made a 40% catch probability play to rob him. He lined out to uh, Gio Urshela on that play where he jumped like nine feet off the ground and this was interesting as well he has hit into three errors now it's not necessarily true that all three of those would have been hits but an error is an 0 for 1 you know nobody has hit into more errors so far so that might have actually robbed him of some sort of fortunate outcomes on his line he is the perfect example of what makes the Astros so tough as a team because they walk a lot and they don't strike out which is like unheard of in the modern game and, That's and a, they hit for power <laughs> and they hit for power right. um so I think he's he, he brings a value even when he in a weird way, kind of in an old school kind of way, even when he isn't really like 
producing as well. And also he had that ridiculous home run on in game six off uh, Severino on a pitch that basically almost like hit him in the chin. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Bank over the over the Crawford boxes. So I'm actually I'm very interested to see if you can keep the strikeouts free going. If you can get a series through, against the Nationals without striking out, that is a feat in and of itself. We have absolutely doomed him to three strikeouts in game one. I guarantee it. Um, well, uh, that's it's one of the uh, many subplots that I will be watching in this series. If you think about the matchup of the Nationals and Astros, um, they are not a team that you, they're not a combination of teams that you you know think of facing off. I know they were both in the National League for a while, so if, if you look back long enough ago, you could find them playing every single year. Uh, you could find the Expos playing the Colt 45s, I guess. That's fun, too. But I went back and I tried to find some recent examples of the Nationals and Astros playing one another. And what I hadn't realized was that in 2011, they played uh, against each other in Houston. And that was actually on July 20th, Jose Altuve's Major League debut. And he is one of the biggest stars in the game now. That game, they won 3-2 in 11 innings. Altuve went 1-5 for five with a walk. And if you know me at all, you know that if I found a box score from eight years ago with a relevant player in it, we are going to, and I quote, remember some guys... <laughs> Rick Ankeel played center field for Washington that day. Uh, the Nationals did not have blue and orange uniforms. They had like the, uh, you know, dark red and kind of sand color that Arizona kind of goes with, yeah, which I sort sure. of liked. Um, there were five guys in that game who were still active, Altuve, obviously, uh, and five others. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman, still on the Nationals, Ian Desmond, Tyler Clippard, Hunter Pence, and Mark Melanson. Alex Cora played in that game. He's now the manager of the Red Sox. And uh, Matt, I have printed out the box scores for you right here. Which which guy are you remembering right now the most? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna go with Brian Bogusevic. Yep, that's a good one. <laughs> who pinch hit? He was a two, he was a two way player before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. Uh, as as was Rick Ankiel in some sense. Uh, Michael Bourne led off in that game. The middle of the Astros lineup, uh, the three four five was Hunter Pence, Carlos Lee, Brett Wallace, followed by Chris Johnson. Brett Myers actually started that game. I don't have anything more insightful to say about this particular game other than that we have successfully remembered some guys. I'll one-up you briefly and on this tangent because I actually was thinking about the, the first Nationals game I ever attended, which was actually at RFK Stadium. And I, the only thing I remembered about the game, which helped me find the box score, was it was a Mets-Nationals game and that Michael Tucker homered. Lo and behold, Michael Tucker hit only one home run for the Mets. That was. So, <laughs> so it was a pretty easy box score to find. Um, and what stood out to me is that it was August 13th, 2006, and the one thing that stood out to me is that the starting third baseman for the Nationals that day was Ryan Zimmerman. <laughs> Beyond that, it was still a hodgepodge of uh, some guys, including Alfonso Soriano, Nick Johnson, Austin Kearns, Ryan Church, um, and Tony Armas started the game for the Nationals. But uh, Ryan Zimmerman, Mr. National, started game 13 years ago and is uh, going to start his first World Series game tonight. We're not going to remember some Washington guys without dropping the names. Termel Sledge... Lastings Millage. I actually enjoyed those early Washington uh, teams. So there are a ton of larger names in this current series. Uh, I think most people would point to the starting pitching, uh, which I, I guess you could argue is some of the best starting pitching we've ever seen in a World Series. Now, I'm not sure I buy the narrative that this is going to transform the game and everyone's going to give up on bullpens and just get great starting pitchers. Um, I say that for two reasons. One of them is it's not easy to find these guys. You can't just go out and say, oh, I'm going to get Verlander and Scherzer and Cole all in one winter. The second thing, as uh, Joe Sheehan tweeted, after the Royals won in 2015, you didn't see everyone going to play small ball and bunting a lot, although I guess they could kind of start the bullpenning a little bit. We, uh, we had this idea, or maybe you read it somewhere, I don't actually know. Anthony Kasterman's wrote about this MLB.com. There we go. 
how many Hall of Famers are in this World Series and might it be the most? And it's a really interesting question, mostly because you can't possibly know. I think we would agree there are two, no doubt, slam dunk locks Hall of Famers in this series, uh, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, right? No argument there. Well, first, before we get into how many we think are in this series, let's add a little context. The um, With the help of the Elias Sports Bureau, we found out that the most Hall of Famers in a World Series happened in the 1932 World Series, the famous called shot World Series, Yankees. Cubs, you had... Before you name these, I want to give people a chance to try to think of the 13 Hall of Famers who played in the 1932 World Series. Now, I have the list, so I can't do it, but if I had had this opportunity, there's two very obvious names, and if I thought about it really hard, I could probably get two more, and I would never have made it to 13. Yeah, me neither. So, on the Yankees, there was Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Earl Coombs. Was it Coombs or Combs? Combs. Earl Combs, Bill Dickey. Lefty Gomez, Tony Lazari, Lazari, Lazari. See, thank you. <laughs> Herb Pennock, Red Ruffing, and Joe Sewell. And then for the Cubs, you had Kiki Kyler, Burley Grimes, Gabby Hartnett, and Billy Herman. Yeah, I, like, so Ruth and Garrick, obviously the easy ones. If I thought about it a lot, I would probably get to Bill Dickey uh, and maybe Gabby Hartnett, and then I would run out of steam pretty quickly after that. And then the most in we, I was also curious. So I said, I asked uh, Elias. What is the most in the divisional era to give us a little more of an apples to apples comparison? And the record is seven in the 1983 World Series between the Orioles and Phillies. This one, I think, would be a little easier uh, for people to guess. On the Orioles, you had Cal Ripken Jr., Eddie Murray, and Jim Palmer. On the Phillies, you had Steve Carlton, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, Mike Schmidt, and... Pete Rose, who does not count, but you know, would have been there based on his merits. So that would have been that would have actually would have been eight. So that's the so maybe unofficially the record would be eight, but we'll say that we'll say the record is seven. So let's. So uh, do you think we, before we go through the names, do you think we have seven in this World Series? I actually do. You do. Okay. So the two slam dunks, and are... also the, the we can go back and look at recent years because there might have been in recent years we might have only. Well, I, I have that too. So uh, the two slam dunks are Verlander and Scherzer. No question about it. Uh, the veterans with with strong cases, who I think we both agree probably will get there, but I don't think if they retired today, it's like a no doubter. Uh, Zach Greinke and Jose Altuve, who somehow is not 30 years old yet. How is that possible? He doesn't turn 30 till next May. Yeah, they're not quite locks on the Verlander-Scherzer Verlander level, but I think that barring significant injury, they are they're, they're, they will they will get in. Yeah. I think Greinke will benefit from the changing of like the electorate in baseball and people voters becoming a little more, you know, less reliant on wins and being seeing more of a big picture on pitcher because if you look at like from his era, he's a he's, you know, top five, top seven pitcher, maybe, you know, top 10 at worst. All right. So those are four. Uh, and then there, this, uh, the next group of three here are like these young veterans who obviously have more work to do, but have certainly gotten off to very impressive starts. So that would be Garrett Cole, Steven Strasburg, and Anthony Rendon. I could definitely see any of the three getting in, but certainly not just based on what they've done so far. Correct. I think that Cole is actually pretty similar. I see him on sort of like the Scherzer path where it like took him a few years to kind of pieces together but now he's kind of hitting his stride and looks well positioned to be like a workhorse ace for the next few years um you could see it for maybe george springer i think he's got a lot of work to do i'm, I'm probably going to take the under on that one but i guess it's possible if he has like a really great continuation of his career i think he's actually might be of of all the names we're listing here he's probably the least likely yes in my opinion um and then the young guys are what's really fa- like the the guys who are within their first like three years of their career i think are really fascinating because i if you had to ask me those are um Juan Soto, Alex Bredman, and you have to include Jordan Alvarez. Yes. 22-year-olds who hit like this. D- general- it's tough for a DH, but yeah. sure. Pension. But after the big four, Verlander, Scherzer, Altuve, Grinke, I'd probably put Juan Soto next of like the next most likely to make the Hall of Fame when you consider like 
20 year olds who hit like this barring injury are like there's there's no precedent for them not being all-time great players so it's almost like it's he he seems it's while it's crazy to say oh a 20 year old is a lock for the hall of fame in my mind he feels as much as you can say we, about a 20 year, 20 year old i agree we, we went through this in great detail like unless you get seriously injured like you know tony c you don't start off a career like this and not end up in cooperstown i also like the idea that uh we may not realize some of the other like nondescript guys like 10 years from now you might look back and go wow Kyle Tucker and Tanner Rainey were in that World Series too. <laughs> oh, awesome! By the way, we aren't even talking about Carlos Correa, who injuries yeah. have probably probably prevented him from being in this conversation. But like, you can't—he's still only like twenty-five. You can't completely rule him out. But um, if only Bryce Harper were still on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so Soto and Bregman. So so basically, as, as I see it, I see Verlander, Scherzer, Altuve, Granke. That's four. Um, I'm going to put Cole in, and I'm going to put Soto and Bregman in. Seven. I'll buy it. And, you know, we may find out that, you know, some of the recent years had more. Like, if you look back at Dodgers-Red Sox last year, uh, Kershaw's a slam dunk, right? Jansen, Bellinger, Machado all will have decent cases. Uh, Betts, Sale, Kimbrell, Devers? I mean, that could be eight right there. Or Dodgers-Astros from two years yeah, ago. Well, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, no, yeah, no Machado in that one, I guess, but yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 an interesting, uh, interesting conversation to have. It's definitely, there's... There's no question this World Series is filled with superstar players. There's, you know, a lot of great narratives around the pitching. And you've got Washington. This is kind of their chance to the franchise first, even going back to the Expos days. Their first trip to the World Series, this franchise has been around in some points since 1969. Um, the Astros, if they win, you kind of have to think of them as a, a, a dynasty. You know, like, I know it's two and three years. The, the Giants won three and five years recently, but the Giants were, were a fluke. It, there was a lot of changeover from year to year. There was only like two or three players that were the same. They were never a dominant team. Whereas the Astros over the last three years, their run differential is like 740. The Yankees from 1998 through 2000 was like 540. So basically they're 200 runs better than a Yankees team from the wild card era, wild card era that won three straight World Series. Just to give you a little perspective on how dominant they've been in the, in the regular season. So I think that if the Astros win this, you, they kind of feel like a dynasty. Uh, you just made me sad for a minute because I, I, I think I had said before, like, oh, you know, Expos versus Colt 45s. Now that I'm thinking through it, the Expos came in in 69 and the Astros or the Colt 45s became the Astros in 65. So those two teams never coexisted. I did, however, see a woman riding her bike outside the office today with a Colt 45s hat on, which I thought was pretty fun. Um, I had written that my pick for the series was Astros in six. And I'm going to change that now. I'm going to say Nationals in seven. What do you got? Um, I said in our, in our little like staff like pick them. I said Nationals in seven. Um, I'll stick with it. Um, nationals in seven. Nationals in seven. Just because like I don't know, but I, I do. I do wonder. It's really hard to study, and you hate to put too much stock in it. But in recent history, we've seen the long layoffs. The teams that have had long layoffs have really struggled. Um, in the seven era of the seven game LCS, teams that have swept the seven game LCS are one there's eight of them there's they're one and seven and the team that's clinched first has lost nine of the last 10 World Series so it definitely feels like and like let's be honest these guys play every day for basically eight months and then they have to take a week off you can't say that doesn't have some effect on the timing for hitters even if they try and play simulated games it's just not your adrenaline's not the same you don't have the crowd it's just not the same so while from from an analytical standpoint you like to kind of just 
toss it aside and be like, oh, that doesn't matter. Because you don't want to get in a world where teams would rather lose games, right? You don't want to get to where they're like, oh, I can sweep the LCS tonight, but maybe I'd rather lose. It just feels kind of anti-competitive. But it does feel like it's kind of a factor as much as I, I want to dismiss it. And so that's actually the thing that gives me the most hesitation about picking the Nationals. I think it's really hard for them to come in in games one and two, especially on the road, and perform at their peak. So if the Astros win, you get to choose your own narrative, right? <laughs> is it the teams with the most wins above replacement wins, or is it the team that had the longest layoff loses? And I guess that's the fun part about this, is you can assign any sort of meeting to any outcome you like. The the thing the Nationals have going for them, and why I, I originally picked them, is that they are so reliant on starting pitching, and they were able to line up their pitchers exactly as they wanted. Not to mention the fact they have the best fourth starter of the group. So they have the only the fourth, only fourth starter. starter. So I think that that, that matters. Um and that's definitely where they have an edge. And Dave Martinez has shown a really good ability to, to work Corbin and Scherzer in out of the bullpen in the first couple of rounds. Granted, he didn't have to go um, into a, to deep in a seven-game series. So that might make it a little harder to do. And he may have to rely a little more heavily on your boy Tanner Rainey, who might end up being the, the biggest X factor in yes, the series. Or either team. <laughs> yeah. um, the Astros lineup is definitely a little bit deeper, um, but that'll be mitigated at the NL Parks when you don't have to worry about um, the DH. And I don't know. Is losing the DH a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what I, kind of Alvarez you're getting? Exactly. Alvarez versus Howie Kendrick doesn't look so imbalanced yeah. right now, which seems kind of crazy. So I'll say Nationals in seven. I think that the um, the atmosphere in D.C. is going to be fantastic. It's going to be a really cool uh, thing to see a city hosting its first World Series game. And it's whoa, whoa, not a, not a city. Sorry, a, a franchise. There we go. A franchise hosting its first. <laughs> I, I don't want the Senator Truthers to come after me. <laughs> <laughs> a franchise hosting its first World Series game. That'll be pretty exciting, and I think it's a pretty cool moment for for baseball in DC. It's a market that's kind of has never really fully. It's had a lot of star power, but it feels like the it's never quite had the passion behind it. But a trip to the World Series and a World Series victory could definitely change that all right nationals and seven nationals and seven uh gorilla never strikes out so we've guaranteed astros and four and five strikeouts tonight for yuli guriel uh the world series starts tonight it should be a lot of fun it starts in a few hours this is our show for this week this is the mlb.com Statcast podcast thanks for listening
Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 